Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Anyone who read Firekeeper's Daughter knows the power and connection author Angeline Bully brings to her writing. Bully's follow-up young adult novel builds upon the storyline of the original characters by creating a page-turning mystery all within the backdrop of Northern Michigan Ojibwe culture. Today we talk with Bully about her newest book that embraces the joys and misfortunes of Native life through fiction. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In Canada, the Special Interlocutor on Unmarked Graves at former residential schools says governments should not wait for her report to act. As Dan Karpinchuk tells us, she's set to table her interim report at the end of the week. Kimberly Murray says there's a lot that governments could be doing right now. Murray's report comes after calls to action in the wake of several discoveries of unmarked graves at former residential schools in different parts of Canada over the past couple of years. Ottawa appointed her to work with Indigenous people and make recommendations that would help strengthen federal laws to protect and preserve unmarked burial sites. Murray says there are areas of concern that she will be raising in her interim report. As I continue to meet with survivors and communities, uh, I'm hearing more and more of issues and concerns that they're raising of the barriers that they're facing as they do the sacred work of finding the children. One of the main hurdles she's found is getting access to documents and records. The ongoing uh, struggle that they have to get full access. Many communities are being being given redacted documents or limited documents. Um, the time to get to access to the records are taking a very long time. It can take up to six to eight months for a community to get access agreements in place. Murray also says there are concerns regarding access to land. She says much of the land is privately owned. Murray was asked to help guide Indigenous communities through jurisdictional and legal barriers at burial sites, as well as help with talks with government institutions and churches. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Guatemala's best-known journalist is scheduled to be sentenced this week in a case international press freedom organizers call a blatant attack against independent journalism in that Central American country. The recent closing of the newspaper means the loss of indigenous voices. Maria Martin reports. These are dark times for journalism in Guatemala. As the newspaper journalist Jose Ruben Zamora founded over 25 years ago is now shuttered. And with it gone are critical voices and the indigenous perspective not often heard on Guatemalan media. Overall, in all major newspapers, very, very few Maya voices. Historian Maria Aguilar of Maya Quiche Ancestry is one of those voices now silenced by the closure of the muckraking newspaper El Periódico. You're losing the one of the newspapers with few uh, Maya columnists, but you're also losing a paper where you had very critical investigative journalists that revealed a lot of the corruption that in reality, that corruption really affected the entire country and it affected the majority of the population um, who is poor and indigenous. Guatemalan prosecutors have asked for a sentence of 
40 years for journalist Jose Ruben Zamora. The paper he founded, El Periódico, was forced to close recently due to economic and political pressure from the government of Guatemala. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The Cherokee Nation Monday celebrated the acquisition of actor Will Rogers' birthplace ranch from the Oklahoma Historical Society and will reimagine the property for tourism. According to the tribe, Rogers grew up on the family ranch, leaving around 1905 to pursue his Hollywood career. The home dates to as early as 1873. It was moved around 1960 to a hilltop and has since been a public historic site. Today, the property spans 162 acres. The Cherokee Nation plans to renovate next year. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sonoski Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sonoski Chambers Law. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal-winning radio show and podcast. Angeline Bully exploded on the scene two years ago with her debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter. The New York Times bestselling author introduced the world to a contemporary Native American heroine with an unwavering love for community and culture. Bully has just released her much-anticipated sequel, Warrior Girl Unearthed. Set in Bully's northern Michigan home of Sugar Island, lands of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, and featuring a new protagonist, 16-year-old Perry Firekeeper Birch. A young Native woman who, while becoming a leader in her tribe's efforts to repatriate ancestral remains, finds herself embroiled in a sinister plot of murder and betrayal. Today we'll talk with Angeline Bully about her new book and her life. Please join us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And with that said, allow me to introduce our guest who is speaking with us from New Buffalo, Michigan, Angeline Bully. She's the author of the new book, Warrior Girl Unearthed, and she is an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. Angeline, it's so good to have you on the show again. Welcome back. Ah, bonjour, Anine. It's so good to be back. Bonjour to you as well, and congratulations on your second novel. You didn't make us wait too long, so on behalf of all the Firekeeper Daughter fans out there, thank you. Ah, you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a chance to read Warrior Girl on Earth this past weekend, and if my math is right, the story takes place about 10 years after Firekeeper's Daughter. Protagonist Donis Fontaine has grown into this kind of cool native anti-role and her niece has now stepped up to be our new native BA. 
Tell us more, Angeline. Take over from there, please. Yes. So, um, gosh, the idea for Warrior Girl came to me. It was, uh, I had my agent and she said, okay, what else do you have? Because we were going to go out on submission with Firekeeper's Daughter and I had nothing. And uh, I was like walking around one day. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time, just out for a Sunday walk. And all of a sudden, this character's voice popped into my head and she said, I stole everything they think I did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And I just thought, who is this person? And uh, I ran into the nearest business, um, uh, asked for a piece of paper and a pen and a Chardonnay. And I just like wrote what this 16 year old girl was telling me as she was sitting in a police station waiting for her parents to come pick her up. And that's when I knew my second book would be this like indigenous Lara Croft, but instead of raiding tombs, she's raiding museums and private collections to retrieve stolen ancestral remains and sacred items that do not belong in museums or private collections. But being 16 years old, um, none of her heists go the way that she plans. <laughs> yeah, she runs into some a few challenges along the way. So <laughs> that's such a cool story. So this idea just came into your head. And then I also read that that you actually saw a tweet when somebody was saying, hey, the, the world needs like a, a Native American Lara Croft. So that was also part of an inspiration, wasn't it? Yes. So before this like inspiration hit me, I had looked at a tweet on Twitter and it 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 made enough of an impression that I like liked it or saved it or took a screenshot of it. And um, so when I had the idea for that indigenous Lara Croft, I think that that earlier tweet from like a year prior uh, was still like was percolating just right beneath the surface. And her, um, Sarah Montoya, she had uh, tweeted movie idea, indigenous Lara Croft, but returning items like and and so i yeah so it all just kind of fit together wow that is so cool angeline sequels seem really challenging because they need to be written in a way that the story it makes sense to readers who already read the first book but it also has to to make sense to people who didn't read the book so was that hard making all the plot elements from both books fit together not really. I felt like the harder task would have been if I wanted to do a traditional sequel of Donis 2.0. And, and that did not excite me at all. Um, I was more excited to write a character that was so different from Donis. And I felt that she would be more interesting as a secondary character, like viewed through somebody else's eyes. So I really was excited to write a character who was just so different. Um, and I wanted to write it in a way that people could read the books out of order and, and that it would still make sense to them. 
It does. It very much does because you, you, you get those key elements there. You, you connect the dots for somebody who hadn't read the first book. Luckily, I had read the first book, so it, it made sense to me. And, and like I shared with you before we went on air, you know, your books just resonate with me because for somebody that spent a lot of time growing up in Michigan and I played ice hockey, I'm very familiar with some of these cities that are referenced in your books. And I even had a, a, a relative that at one point worked for the DEA. And then with um, the new book with Warrior Girl on Earth, there's like this summer internship program. And I, I've done a lot of youth work, so I'm familiar with like doing presentations <laughs> to those types of programs. And I've even played like Jeopardy games before with with young people. And I'm familiar with kind of like these teen clicks and stuff. So yeah, your books just really, really hit a lot of notes. And I just appreciate that so much. And then I also read that you felt some pressure because there's that, you know, that stereotype of the sophomore jinx and you had so much success with Firekeeper's Daughter. And did that influence the writing process for War Girl on Earth? Just that pressure like that? It it did. It did in that if you hit a grand slam in your very first time at bat in the major leagues, um, your second time at bat, if you just get on base, is that, you know, you just want to get on base. You just want to prove that um, the first time at bat was not a fluke. And um, I, I did stress about it, but then I really tried to uh, talk to myself that, listen, you're a stronger writer than you were um, with Firekeeper's Daughter. Like there's so much I had to teach. I mean, it took 10 years to write Firekeeper's Daughter. And honestly, the first five years was probably me figuring out how to how to write, how to tell a story. Um, and, and so knowing that my second book, I was going into it as a stronger writer, that helped to maybe keep that second book uh, jinx maybe at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us more about what it took to, to become a writer. Like you said, you had this, this whole new second career after working with the Department of Education. Did you take workshops or, or classes or did you just kind of figure it out on your own? No, I just figured it out on my <laughs> own. And, um, but then I would say about a year before I got my agent, I went to a native writers retreat. It was called Loon Song Turtle Island. It was um, put together by Cynthia Lydic Smith and Debbie Dahl Edwardson. And it was the first writing event that I ever went to. And honestly, I found out about it through Twitter because I followed some of these native authors that I just admired so much. And I started, you know, hearing about this retreat and I thought okay I've not gone to any I've not invested any money in a writer's conference or any you know retreat I think this is the one and it turned out to be such a I don't know such a, a magical experience I mean I met um, Carol Lindstrom and this was before we are water protectors uh, Kara Rogers uh, uh, Don Quigley, um, you know, there were just so many, uh, Rainey Hobson, uh, just, there were so many incredible writers that were just, it was like, we kind of knew we stumbled into something special because it was, it was like, 
being able to talk with other Native writers, and we didn't have to spend half the time explaining who we who we are and what we're writing about and why that makes sense to us. And, and that was such a different experience from any writer's group that I had ever participated in, you know, where there weren't, where it wasn't an all Native group. I just think it was something just, just so incredible. Uh, Debbie Reese was there. Um, it just, it was the most incredible experience. And that changed my belief in that the dreams I had for my writing career, that it was possible and that it was within my grasp. And then what I also find so amazing, it, it all came together for you so quickly because once you, you you figured the craft and you wrote that book, it sounds like it didn't take very long to get an agent, to get a book deal. And then the movie options, of course, I mean, it just all just came together quickly. Yeah, I would say within six months of that Loon Song Turtle Island, I had my agent. And then within five months of that, I had a seven-figure uh, two-book deal from a major publisher, and I had the film deal with with the Obamas. <laughs> well, we're definitely gonna gonna talk about that. Uh, the Obamas Production Company, who has optioned uh, your first book, and of course, uh, lots more to talk about with Warrior Girl on Earth. But we do have to take a short break. Our guest today, Angeline Bully, New York Times bestselling author, just released this new book, and it is really, really a good read. Phone number, if anybody has a question, if you want to give a shout out to Angeline, if you're a fan of her writing, what are you waiting for? Our phone lines are open and we can take your call. We'll get your comments on the air right away. Phone number 1-800-996-2848. Once again, just give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. More than a dozen indigenous communities in Canada were forced to evacuate because of wildfires. The blazes destroyed several homes. Smoke from the fires created problems in several U.S. cities, too. We'll hear about the threat from the fires and how communities are bracing for what could be the worst wildfire season on record. That's on the next Native America Calling. OCO, calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Men or warriors all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with best-selling author Angeline Bully today. Her new novel, Warrior Girl Unearthed, is a story of love, murder, and betrayal, all within the setting of a Native community's effort to reclaim its ancestors. Have you read the book yet? If so, which character do you most relate to? Perry? Chauncey? Donis? Lucas? Eric? Or my personal favorite, Cooper? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And Angeline, 
I think one of the hallmarks of your writing that readers really appreciate is just how much you teach people about Native issues, Native events, history, culture, and uh, both of the books really double down on a wide range of, of issues facing contemporary Native people. And it's it's really a fun way to learn because like, for instance, this new book, I mean, anybody who needs like a crash course in the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, reading War Girl, I mean, that's like a really fun way to learn that information. Thank you. I'm uh, Yeah, my career has been in uh, education. and And so... I just figured out that through the power of a story, you can educate, but um, entertain in a weird way. Uh, it's it's a way to draw people in. And I could give a lecture about NAGPRA, or you could read this book and get the same information and truly care about the characters that are and the communities that are experiencing these issues in real life. Absolutely. And I know in your first book, you consulted with with a lot of law enforcement people to write more accurate portrayals of your characters and scenes. And who provided some of the technical expertise for War Girl Unearthed? Uh, my primary source was uh, is uh, Shannon Martin, and she had been the uh, executive director for the Zeboing Cultural Center um, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, operated by the Susan or by the uh, Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe. And um, she was my primary resource, but also, you know, Sonia Adelaide, um, uh, Shannon O'Loughlin at Association on American Indian uh, Affairs, uh, my own tribe's uh, repatriation people, Colleen Medicine, Cecil Pavlot, um, you know, there just there were a lot of really great people that were so willing to answer questions that I had and help, you know, help me make this a, a realistic and good uh, depiction about what it's like to repatriate. And I did want to note that I dedicated my book to the 108 328 ancestors still held by institutions and those working to bring them home. And, you know, Shannon, uh, Cecil, Colleen, um, you know, uh, Eric Hemingway, Willie, uh, Willie Johnson, like there are just so many people that are doing this incredible work. Mm. The book is also, both books are just loaded with, with language and, did you get assistance with that as well? Or do you, are you really well, are you very fluent in, in your native language as well? I definitely had help because I am so not, um, I'm, I'm that generation that it skipped over. So my dad grew up fluent, um, but then he, you know, decided not to teach us. And I understand he was making a loving decision, wanting to spare us from some of the really negative situations that he had growing up. I mean, Sault Ste. Marie was a very difficult place to grow up being a dark-skinned Native man in the 40s and 50s, and I would argue it still is. Um, so yeah, I think I'm that generation that our parents, you know, a parent knew the language, spoke it maybe even fluently, and um, opted not to teach us. And then our kids 
are curious about it, my own kids went to Saginaw Chippewa Tribe, uh, Saginaw Chippewa Academy that had uh, uh, Ojibwe language. And, and so my kids were getting it. And I remember them talking to my dad and my dad saying, oh, that's so wonderful. Make sure you, you know, keep them with the language. They need to have that. And there was kind of that growth that I needed to do of, I don't have it to give, but let me see what I can do. Um, so yes, I definitely get help on Anishinaabe Mawin, uh, uh, Dr. Margaret Noden, she's been a great help. And also uh, Dr. Michelle Wellman-Teeple at Bay Mills Community College. She's She's been incredible. And Angeline, your characters, first it was Donis, now we have Perry. How much of you is is in those two characters? They're, they're empowered, they're intelligent, they're, they're spunky as well. Is that you? Uh, Living vicariously, I'm closer. I'm closer to Donis than I am to Perry. Perry's who I wish I would have been as a teen. I'm more <laughs> uh, close to her sister Pauline, high achieving and extremely anxious. Uh, <laughs> and and so yeah, Perry was so wonderful to write because I could kind of live vicariously through her and say all the things that I wish I could say in the moment and, you know, leap without looking or thinking about consequences. Uh, she was absolutely refreshing and just a breath of fresh air, which I felt like given the subject matter of repatriations, which can be such an intense uh, subject matter. I felt like Perry's, um, joie de vivre, that lightness of spirit was so important. And that's what made her the perfect narrator to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And the romantic interest in, in Firekeeper's Daughter, it's Jamie, who's the undercover person. And then in this book, it's, uh, it's Eric. And I have heard you say that there was actually, when you were in high school, there was a, a a guy in your school who was doing undercover work. So that was kind of the motivation for Jamie. And so I'm curious, is was there an Eric in your life somewhere along the line too? No, um, Eric was, okay. When I worked for my tribe, Saginaw, or I'm sorry, Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, um, I supervised our internship program. And I saw that, you know, uh, about half of the student, half of the interns came from locally. And then the other half were Sioux tribe members who had never lived or worked uh, or had a close connection with the tribe and they were so new to everything. And so really Eric was inspired by that of someone who is an enrolled citizen, but really doesn't have, you know, has never lived in the community and is kind of learning all of this stuff um, as he goes along. Well, Angeline, as you shared earlier, the first book, it's been optioned by the Obama's production company. The company's called Higher Ground Productions. And the plan is to adapt it into a Netflix series. Any updates you can share regarding that project? Well, before the writer's strike, which I fully support, uh, we have a showrunner and a head writer. The head writer is Winona Wilms, and I believe she's Redcliffe Ojibwe. Um, and they had completed a script that 
everyone was pleased with Netflix, you know, gave the green light to, and, um, the next step would be to assemble a writer's room, which means adding four to eight more writers. Hopefully they are all native and uh, they would work on the scripts for the rest of season one. And once they get those scripts approved, then they can go into production and casting and all of that. But um, with the writer strike, everything is on uh, pause. And I completely support the writer strike. Um, writing, writing for the screen is not a gig job. And to try to treat it like part of the gig economy does a disservice to the immense talent of writers who deserve a living wage. And it is a disservice to viewers who want quality programming. Mm -hmm. We did a show just uh, last month uh, with some Native American television and, and movie writers, and they shared the very same thoughts you're expressing today. So it's wonderful to, to see that solidarity there that you have with, with Native writers and all writers for, for television and movies, Angeline. And so hopefully it sounds like, though, once they get through this dispute, uh, this is going to happen. This Netflix series will, will probably happen here within hopefully the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to happen. And I keep thinking, like, I want a cameo. Um, this is so <laughs> weird. But I think about, like, what role would I want to be as a cameo? And because um, I think about Stan Lee. And, <laughs> and oh, yeah, so um, I don't know. Well, you've got those two great grandma characters, Millie, right? I mean, oh, oh, yeah, Minnie, Minnie, and Minnie, Granny sorry, June, Sini. Yeah. Uh, um, there's a lot of characters that I think I could just kind of pop in, and I don't know, but uh, you're not old enough for those characters, but they could maybe like age progress you, maybe right with the modern. Yeah, I, I could be like a friend of Aunt Teddy's, um, or something like that. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, I also want to ask you, Angeline, have the Obamas come calling for Warrior Girl? They have the first rights to it, um, but yeah, we're not we're not read, we're not there to announce anything yet. So okay, Alrighty. let's just see what happens. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Angeline, we've got a caller on the line right now, Brian, who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Brian, you are on the air talking with Angeline Bully. Well, thank you so much. It's a great broadcast, and I have yet to read the books, but after this interview, it definitely makes me want to go get them. My question is about your writing process, Angeline. I mean, do you, do you follow a schedule? You had mentioned you were in education. Did you write in the evening? How, did you, how, do, how do you structure your day around the writing process? I was a completely different writer for books one and book two. So for book one, I was working, you know, full time. And so the only time I had where my brain felt creative and alert was the first thing in the morning. And towards the end, you know, when I was, um, you know, writing that final draft, it was, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and I would write for three hours before I would have to commute into the district you know, to work my day job at, at the U.S. Department of Education. Um, for my second book, for Warrior Girl, 
I, I was a full-time author working for myself. Ideally, that meant I had all day to write and I found it was so hard. I ended up like writing at night um, because it just seemed like my day got filled up with so many things, you know, promoting Firekeeper's Daughter, um, doing public speaking. And uh, really, I, I kind of turned into a night writer and uh, I'm working on my third book and I want to get back to that early morning when I would wake up with story on my mind and I just felt so alive and creative. Angela, thank you for responding to Brian's question. And you just mentioned the third book. So I got to ask, is this uh, another installment of the, the Firekeeper, perhaps a trilogy we're looking at here? Oh, yeah. My stories about Sugar Island. So yes, I'm working on a third book and we don't have any announcement yet. And, uh, but I have a really great idea and I'm publishing is one of those weird things where you have news and then you can't talk about it for like a year or six months. And so, um, I have really good news, but I can't talk about it for a bit. <laughs> okay, well, being the sneaky sometimes, I got to get kind of sneaky in this job as the host, so I'm going to figure out if I can kind of get a little bit more information with this next question. So through your fiction, you've broached issues like missing and murdered Indigenous people, repatriation, boarding schools, blood quantum, even land back, land back movement, things like that. So I got to ask you, what other social, political, and historical issues that, that face Native people do you see a need to address through your books? Iqua. There we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Maybe a I spoiler alert. I don't too, know. <laughs> Firekeeper's Daughter, Element of Fire, uh, Warrior Girl Unearthed, Element of Earth, and so if you follow, you know, the four elements, um, you know, that mm. kind of is a major clue about where I see my career uh, headed. Very revealing, very revealing, Angeline. Um, so much of your work is inspiring young people to read. And, and sometimes I, I like to read a lot. I'm, we're, we're contemporaries. We're about the same age. And, but I worry sometimes there's so many forms of media right there that are competing for young people's attention. There's movies, there's television, they've got video games, social media. Do you ever worry that just that simple act that you and I grew up with, reading a book, spending time sitting there, that that could at some point become obsolete in a way that people absorb knowledge and information? No, I, I really don't because um, I, I'm a fan of audiobooks and I absolutely love uh, both of my audiobooks that are narrated by Isabella Starr LeBlanc. And I think audiobooks is like a, it's a really great avenue to reach people that maybe, you know, um, you know, don't want to read, but they still want to hear story and their minds still create those picture, those images in their mind. And to be able to hear the language spoken um, in the way that it was meant to. Uh, I, I think graphic novels, I think whatever avenue reaches a person, that's, that's perfectly fine by me. And you know, talking about 
the audiobooks. Are you involved with those productions as well, or is that a completely separate project? Not so much in the production. So I was able to select Isabella Star LeBlanc uh, for the first book, and then that we wanted her back for the second. And um, the, you know, Dr. Margaret Noden and um, Dr. Michelle Wellman Teeple, you know, they worked with her on pronunciation things. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was more of identifying the right narrator and then just kind of stepping back and letting the rest of the process happen. Mm. Angeline, we're going to have to take another break here. This is our second break of the show, and uh, we've got another caller lined up on the other side of this break. And anybody else who would like to ask Angeline a question or give her a shout out or just comment on, on what they've thought of the new book, Warrior Girl Unearthed, or perhaps Firekeeper's Daughter, our phone number is 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. We'll be right back. We've got more with Angeline Bully on the other side. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still time to give a shout out to our guest today, young adult fiction author, Angeline Bully. Ask Angeline a question or share a comment about her work at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. And remember, you can listen back to today's show and past shows on major podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. We've got another caller on the line. His name is Clifton. He's also listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello there, Clifton. Hello. Hey, uh, so excited to hear about the new book, and I just uh, had to take advantage of this opportunity to thank Angeline for this incredibly well-crafted, you know, essentially uh, kind of a, a mystery thriller that uh, kept me just concerned. I couldn't put the book down. And at the same time, set against the backdrop of Sugar Island, uh, and uh, that sort of helped me know uh, some people in a new way, um, all so seamlessly put together. And, you know, I'm an emotional guy. I may have cried. So I'm really looking forward to the new book. Thank you very much. Angeline, feel free to respond to Clifton. Yes. Miigwech, thank you so much. Um, yeah, <laughs> for the tears, just for the emotion, because to me that means the story resonated with you. Um, you either saw yourself or people you love and situations that you care about. And to me, that's the, when we say books are good medicine, that's exactly what it is when it taps into our spirit and connects us with our communities and families. Um, 
really, that's truly the best compliment an author can receive is that the story moved that moved a reader. Angela, I want to build on what Clifton just said, because my sister's a big reader. And right after I read Firekeeper's Daughter, I sent her a copy and she read it. And, and one of her biggest takeaways, there, there is a scene, and, and I won't say too much for people who haven't read the book, but there's a scene when one of the key characters goes away to prison and his family comes and camps out outside the prison. And it's a reference to how families would do that when, when young people back in the day were sent to boarding school, right? They would come, the families would camp out next to the boarding school and just wait for their kids and, and show that their support in that way outside of the building. And she described, my sister said that she had never read another native author that was able to capture how we as native people love. She said, Angeline Bully captured what it is to love among native people. And I, I couldn't agree more. And, and have you, have you been told that before? Um, not in regards to that particular scene, which is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book. And it happened in the very final round of revisions with my editor. I just, I, I was, I fell in love with that character. He reminded me of so many of my, my son's friends and former students that I had worked with in different tribal communities. And I just wanted a different ending for him and for him with his family intact there supporting him and, and, you know, loving him in the way that the best way that they knew how through song, through prayer, through physically just being right there. Um, yeah, I was definitely inspired by a picture that I saw of, you know, teepees outside of the perimeter of a boarding school and, you know, our families love and we love in the best way that we know how. And, and thank you, miigwech. That means so much that that was seen by your relative. You bet, Angeline. And that character we're describing, uh, he reappears in Warrior Girl Unearthed and, um, and he's doing great. Yeah, my characters, the ones I love, they like are making <laughs> appearances in, uh, yeah, yep. I love, that's something that um, I think Louise Erdrich, uh, you know, she she's such a prolific writer. And I think she's so Anishinaabe in how she writes because she, you'll be introduced to a character in one book and then four books later, it's the main character. And, and I think thinking about story and communities in terms of these extended family, um, ex this community relationships, um, that, that felt very natural to me. It, it made sense for me to do as well. I think my, my tear jerking moment, uh, in the first book was when Donis, uh, she, she has, she's not enrolled. And she gets enrolled, but she needs the support of a certain number of tribal people. And she's not sure if she's going to get it. And she goes into that room and like everybody's in there. Like the entire yeah. community is there. That was a yeah. moment when I just, yeah, I teared up with it because that was so moving. It was such a beautiful scene. Yeah. I think that's chapter 28. Yeah. <laughs> I have people who are like, um, 
you know, I lost it at that point, you know, because she needs at least three tribal elders to do an affidavit asserting that, yes, they know her to be uh, the daughter of Levi Firekeeper Sr. And then when this whole line of elders, all these elders that she's been, you know, meeting with and, and talking with and doing iTunes playlists for, and they all come through for her. I just, yeah, that, that's a, that's a triumphant moment because it's not about the membership card. It's about recognizing that she belongs in that community, her, yes. her recognition um, as a part of the family. Yes. And it, it applies to so many people today. I think so many people relate to that issue and, and that scene just illustrates it so beautifully. Angeline, tell us about the cover art for Warrior Girl Unearthed. Oh, Warrior Girl Unearthed. The cover art is by Michaela Goad. She's Alaska Native, and we were able to get her to do the uh, cover illustration right after she won the Caldecott Award, which is the highest award that a children's book illustrator can receive. And she's the first indigenous artist to ever be, you know, to ever receive it. And so I know my publisher and I, we were so excited to be able to work with her. And I really wanted Warrior Girl Unearthed to have an identity that was unique because it's not, because it was a standalone, it could be a standalone story. And so I really wanted an identity that set, set it apart from Firekeeper's Daughter. That was that a different said, artist, right? For Firekeeper's Yes, but, yes. That said, I will never stop speaking the praises of Moses Lunham from Kettle and Stony Point um, First Nation, Ontario. His cover art for Firekeeper's Daughter, to this day, it is the most breathtaking cover I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Yeah, I, and I've heard you describe it as it's just like really, really Anishinaabe. Like there's just no mistaking yeah. it for somebody who knows. Yes. That is so cool. Angeline, your books have made some really high profile reading lists. Do you pay attention to that stuff? And does it have a big impact on, on book sales and things like that? It does have an impact on sales. And I do pay attention. Like I'd like to say, oh, it doesn't matter to me. But truthfully, it does. Because, um, you know, if you're a if you're an indigenous artist, um, indigenous author who gets that shot at the major leagues, um, how well you do at bat, it matters, because it's not just about you. It's about the big five publishers looking at, okay, so can we take a chance on another indigenous author? Are these stories marketable? Are they going to be a success? Like, can they be a commercial success? Can they be a literary success? And so that's where New York Times bestseller lists and other lists um, and, you know, being shortlisted on different things and making these, you know, best of summer or best of, you know, 2023 so far, those kinds of things. They matter to me because it makes a real difference in publishing to see that our stories are, we've always known 
we've always had incredible authors. We just were not getting the book deals. Our stories have always been incredibly told and worthwhile, but for publishing to get behind Indigenous authors, they need to see, can it be um, marketable, uh, commercial, literary, some combination of it. Um, and and so that's why I care about how my book does, because it makes a difference to the other Indigenous authors that are that just want their shot. Mm. Angeline, tell us more about your family, your children, and, and how are they taking in all of your fame and your success in these recent years? Okay, so my dad's Ojibwe, and he, you know, he loves my writing. He didn't always, but um, he loves my writing. And I remember when I told him that I got the book deal for Firekeeper's Daughter, and he was like, don't make any changes from the 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 main you know the pages that I read um you really told like who we are and don't change anything but yeah I ended up changing a lot but um I don't know I'll ask my mom what she thinks of my books and she's like oh it was good and that's as much as I get out of her um my daughter is my hugest fan she's 24 and uh, works for Ford Motor Company. Um, my two sons are 28 and 29. And honestly, I don't, I gave, I gave birth to some reluctant readers. And uh, <laughs> I don't know that they've ever read my books. Um, I do know one of my sons has listened to part of my audiobook because I was in a car with them and I put my audiobook on. Um, but other than that, so yeah. To me, when a cousin of mine says that they read the book and I got it right, that to me is like the highest compliment you could get for my cousin Deb or, you know, uh, other other cousins of mine that if they praise the book, to me, that's like gold. It It's everything. Mm. Well, hopefully... Your sons, if they haven't read the books yet, they'll they'll be able to watch the Netflix series and they'll they'll get up to speed with what they're missing. I can't believe that. <laughs> you know, they what do they say? Like preachers and teachers, like our kids sometimes. Like <laughs> I don't know. I just yeah. I I'm such a voracious reader, and then to have both of my sons be quite reluctant uh, readers. Um, yeah. So I just they'll they'll find the story and i just hope that when they do that um that they connect with it and that they're proud of me angela do you have any thoughts of ever writing any nonfiction? i i've kind of thought about it this is kind of like a huge <laughs> spoiler or whatever i don't know um, when I'm done writing my four book series, I would really love to do a combination memoir and craft of writing, um, you know, something along the lines of here are the stories behind my story, and here's how I figured out how to write and tell a story. Um, so I, I think about that. 
It'd be interesting. Yeah, for sure. So, well, that's a little bit of a spoiler alert then for book series. So we can expect. Oh, God, I did. I let that. Well, <laughs> there's, you know, four elements. So I, I did allude to it previous. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is just so, so exciting. And I'm so happy for you and just all of your success. And it's just such an inspiration to, to hear your story, Angeline, and learn more about what motivates you. Like, like I told you, that just, you know, from, from somebody who spent a lot of time in Michigan, I, it just, it's, it's really, really fun to, to just learn more about you and, and what you've done with your craft and, and your work. And I want to ask you also, like, when you were working there at the Department of Indian Education, what did your colleagues think? Did they know that you were this aspiring author there, you know, by, in the mornings before work and in the evenings afterwards? No, I didn't. I didn't really talk about it. Um, but I remember the day of my book auction. Um, you know, my <laughs> it was a, an ordinary day at work. But meanwhile, on lunch hour, uh, I was on the phone with my agent, uh, hearing about the offers and this and that. And I remember going to my supervisor uh, at the end of the day, and I let her know that I had gotten a seven figure deal. And, you know, it was kind of like my days at Department of Ed were numbered at that point, because there was this bigger dream that was going to take me. Um, so yeah, I do want to give a shout out to um, Melanie O'Brien at the National NAGPRA program with the National Park Service. So when I said about dedicating my book to the 108,000 ancestors that are still in collections, I saw her at a recent event and she told me the number is now at 101,000. And so that number is going down. And then uh, Sioux Tribe, Sioux St. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians, our compliance officer for NAGPRA is uh, Marie Richards. And she sent me an email and said that when she read my book, she had to like set it aside a little bit because there were parts that were just so intense for her doing the repatriation work. And she said one time when she set the book aside, she got an email and it was from Michigan State University saying they had just received the notice of transfer that they were going to be able to repatriate some, you know, some ancestors. And she said, um, there's a part in the book where uh, Perry asks Cooper, her mentor, how do you do this work when it's so, you know, heavy on your heart? And uh, Marie said, I would answer back. It's for those moments when you get that email that says notice of transfer, you're going to get these ancestors, you're going to bring them home. That's why you do the work. That's how you endure. Angela, thank you again for talking with us today and continued success on your storytelling journey. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Calling all warriors, it's time for self-care. Father, uncle, grandfather, son, and nephew all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. Use this checklist to keep track of preventive health service you need. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.